thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Call Kino now. 021-446-0567. Rockstar scientist, the naked scientist, Dr. Christmas. Hi there, Chris. How's lockdown treating you? Morning, Kino. Uh, I'm okay, luckily, because I'm you're, busier you're than ever. You're in essential ever. services. Well, you're in essential it, services, yeah. aren't you? Um, and, and so I'm really busy, um, not least because I'm doing sort of radio things all about coronaviruses, but then I'm also going to the sure. hospital quite a lot and doing the medical side of it as well. And it's really weird when you go in the hospitals because they're completely empty. There's been a lot of capacity created in order to make sure that there is the capacity to soak up lots of people with coronavirus infections. So all the routine yeah. stuff has been cancelled and you go walking around these big long corridors and these huge buildings and they're all empty and it feels really quite spooky actually. Can imagine. And, and what type of work, if I may ask a stupid question, <laughs> because medicine is quite diverse, right? So um, what do you actually do in the hospital itself? Well, I'm a virologist, appropriately enough, at the moment. And so my medical specialty, it's medical microbiology with a specialism in virology. And normally, the laboratory I help to run is all about doing diagnosis for patients in the hospital. So this would be anything from people who need transplants. So we do all the transplant screening, people having babies. So we do all the antenatal screening, people who pitch up and see their GP, their general practitioner, and have Mm. swabs taken for anything and everything, and then all of the tests coming from the uh, sexual health clinics as well. And so they all go through our laboratory and um, and then a few exotic things like this come along. So we're one of the one of the laboratories in England, which is doing the testing for coronaviruses. Lots of very, very busy indeed. So we appreciate that you made time for us. Now, Etienne in Hart Bay has a question for you, Chris. We'll start with Etienne. Hi there, Etienne. Morning, Tina. Morning, Chris. Morning. Um, uh, Chris, I, I hear a lot of people, even scientists, and anthropomorphizing the, the virus with, with uh, you know, and the epidemic with words like enemy and attack and clever and so forth. But it's it's not as if the gazillions of virions out there have a collective consciousness like a like a colony of ants. Um, and rather, the, as far as I understand it, the principles of natural selection apply at the individual virion level. So I, I was just wondering. Do the, the distancing measures we have implemented also deprive the virus population of mutating opportunities and, and thereby preventing future new strains? Or, or, or do these measures have the effect rather of, of intensifying individual variants' drive to mutate towards more successful strains? Hello, Etienne. Very insightful question. And the answer is that the more selective pressure you put on a virus, the fitter it's going to become under those circumstances. So what do I mean by that? Well, if we make it easy for a virus to spread, then it gets sloppy and complacent and it gets away with anything and it's not particularly well honed as a fighting machine, let's say. And I'm using all those very analogies that you've said we shouldn't do, but I'm trying to make it kind of accessible. 
Now, if you, on the other hand, make it harder for the virus, in the same way as if you make it harder for a person to do something, you will select for the people who are better at doing that thing who will win the race. So if we socially distance, if we use vaccines, if we use various other strategies to put more barriers in the way of the virus, we will select viruses which are even more infectious, even better at spreading, even more optimal at infecting us, infecting us quickly and making a person highly infectious. And that will have the effect of honing the virus. And this is all about natural selection. This is how evolution works. It's the selection for traits so that an individual entity, whatever that is, in a given environment is optimal for that environment and overcoming the challenges placed upon it by that environment. So, yes, when we interact with this virus, we are automatically placing it subject to selection. And when we put lockdowns in place, we are forcing it and we're selecting it even harder to make an even more optimal virus. But... If you go one step further and make it impossible for the virus to spread, even with the best ability to adapt in the world, eventually Mm. the so-called reproductive number R0 falls below 1. And in plain speak, that means that the virus infects or is passed to fewer people than just you having it. Because most viruses, in order to grow in number, you have to give it to more than one person for the number of people who are infected to increase. If you give it to yes. fewer than one pe- person on average, then what happens is that the virus fizzles out. And so the aim of a lockdown is to do precisely that. And that is why we need to stick to it. Very important. Etienne, thanks so much. Wonderful question, by the way. Have a lucky one. That's Etienne in Hart Bay. Let's go to, uh, I think this is Athena. Athena in Century City. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Now, what has interested me always are the half moons on our fingernails. How do they form? Why have some people got them? And how do they disappear? I've never cut one off because they don't grow up. (laughs) Hi, Athena. (laughs) Your fingernails are protein. They're the same protein that your hair is made of. This is a protein called keratin. It is produced in strands and strings which are then woven together to make nails or hair accordingly by groups of cells in what is called the nail plate in the case of nails or the hair follicle in the case of hair. And that nail plate is at the root of the nail. And in that site, there are specialised cells that take the various building blocks for making keratin from the bloodstream and they assemble those building blocks into this coiled coil of keratin and this is woven together to make the fingernail and where you see that half moon the that's the nail plate that's where these rows of stem cells are organized so that they feed their contribution to the nail in in a nice uniform regular way because you'll see that the nail plate mirrors the shape of the nail and if you disturb damage or wreck the nail plate you'll wreck the nail and it's very important you don't cut it off because otherwise you'll be cutting into your tissue and you won't be able to grow a healthy fingernail or toenail well, there we go. Thank you very much for that one. Athena in Century City, down in the West Coast. I think a question a lot of people have out there because we've been getting conflicting messages about them. Uh, Dan, good morning. Morning, Kino, and morning, Chris. Morning, Dan. Can we have clarity about the importance of using face masks to prevent the spread of uh, the COVID-19 to contain it? Yeah. There seems to be a misconception that face masks, especially the one, the homemade ones, are intended to protect the wearer. Yeah, Dan? Hi, hi Dan. This is um, this is a controversial area. The current view, adopted by the World Health Organization, and also embraced by many other countries around the world, including the UK is that face masks are not helpful for the general public. That's their main stance, and that's why they're saying people shouldn't rush out and buy them, wear them, or make them. 
They are very useful, on the other hand, in healthcare settings, and to, they protect in those settings healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, other professionals, who will be coming into very close contact with highly infectious and infected patients, and therefore would be expected to be exposed to much higher levels of input virus, which could mean they're much more likely to catch the virus and catch it badly. So that's why we use high stringency masks that make a very tight fit around the nose and mouth and also protect the eyes because the eyes are also not just the route to your soul, they're also the route into your nose. So anything that lands on your eyes can infect your nose as well, which is where the virus wants to go. So they also combine their mask with eye protection. Now, out in the general public, the case is much less clear. If you're observing social distancing and staying away from other people, working from home to the greatest extent possible, only making essential journeys, then actually this makes the biggest contribution to reducing your risk that you can possibly make. We know that the vast majority of transmissions occur in and around the home. 80% plus in most countries are where you, you catch viruses or trade viruses with other people. And therefore, as most people don't wear a mask at home, there's not much more benefit to wearing a mask out and about in public because of the other measures that are in place. Now, one potential other consideration is if you wear a mask and you're highly infectious, then there's a chance that it might reduce the amount of virus that you shed into the environment around you, and this may secondarily protect some other people. But again, if you're observing the social distancing measures, etc., working from home and all that, then actually your chance of encountering that person is reduced anyway. So the feeling is that masks should be preserved for healthcare workers and people who really need them and not uh, that resource be soaked up and used and enforced when it's not going to add much benefit when the other things that we're doing return a much greater benefit. Yeah. And uh, our government's been saying, actually, everybody should be wearing masks and people should be making their own cloth masks. And the reason why they're saying that is that a lot of people, our, our level of testing hasn't reached, um, you know, some of the international levels of testing um, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been tested. I think we're still under 100,000 or something. Um, and they're saying a lot of people are asymptomatic and don't know that they have the virus. And in order to stop the droplets from spreading and going the 1.5 meters or 2 meters or whatever, and they're saying wear the mask because you don't know. Some of you don't know that you have coronavirus and COVID-19. Yeah. yeah. And also the advice that's given for one country does not apply to mm. other countries. The situation Absolutely. in which a person who, who lives in Cape Town and perhaps in a township or something is yeah. quite different from the living conditions of someone who lives in London. Exactly. Completely. And as a result, we don't know about the transmission dynamics under those different circumstances. And it may well be exactly. that advice being used in one country does not apply yeah. in another. Well, it will be, for instance. And so that is a very important consideration that uh, we, we need to have resources and horses for courses as it were as in there mm. has to be an appropriate intervention that's tailored exactly. for each individual country you can't just take what one country does and say oh that's okay for us then we'll do that because there will be very important differences country to country yep. in in social demographic circumstances etc that need to be considered yeah and um, i always encourage people to listen to what the national health department says um under the leadership of professor um karim uh, who's also very respected, etc. And, uh, you know, if we are telling people to wear those masks because you're asymptomatic and you could spread it to someone who's elderly or someone who comes from a very high dense area where immune systems might not be what we need them to be, um, I'd rather err on the side of caution and follow the national government's advice on that. Let's go to John. John in Weinberg. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Smith. Uh, how do we 
street groceries brought into the house? Do we sanitize all the wrapping? Uh, what about uh, bread, meat, and, uh, vegetables? Uh, uh, to what extent do we need to mm. sanitize these so, items? Good question. Yes, and being asked a lot, John, good morning. The answer to this one is it depends on the item. If you've got a plastic wrapped item, a very simple thing to do is you can wipe down the outside of the item because someone might have touched or coughed or sneezed on that item in the shops or or picked it up, touched it, put it back on the shelf, including the shelf stacker doing that. So there could be virus on the outside of items if they're plastic coated and you wipe them down with a soapy solution or an alcohol solution, that's going to be absolutely fine. Metal cans, same story, just wipe them down. Things like cardboard, if you've got cardboard wrapping, so you say a cereal packet or something, what you could do is to take the packaging open the packaging decant the cereal into say a plastic tub or something which is clean and which you can seal at home and then you can throw away all the packaging and wash your hands and then there would be no further risk for fruits and things we have an old saying in microbiology eat it peel it boil it or leave it well with fruits and vegetables you can wash those off under the tap that would detach any virus and wash those away and then you could eat the thing safely you could peel your vegetables and then cook them and that's definitely going to deactivate the virus anyway or if you've got things that are very hard to wash individually like grapes I mean, if you really wanted to go really, really, really far, then you could use something like a dilute solution of hydrogen peroxide and just dip your fruit in there to just cleanse the outside. It's good practice to wash fruit and vegetables anyway because of the fact that people use various fertilisers that can include fertilisers made from animal sewage and things like that. So there may be things in there you don't want on the food and you want to wash off anyway. So you should always wash these things before you eat them. Indeed. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, thank you very much. Stay healthy. It's a pleasure. You're on the coal face, so we're thinking about you. Have a good one. (laughs) Cheers, Kino. Bye. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.